This season of On the Contrary by IDR is supported by the John D and Catherine T MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant and peaceful world. More information at macfound.org. You're listening to On the Contrary by IDR, a show featuring unlikely conversations on topics that affect our future. Here are differing perspectives from leaders and experts. as they help us make sense of the most pressing issues of our time here's your host rachita vora today i'm in conversation with mark khan and crispino lobo mark co-founded omnivore a leading agritech focused venture capital firm that has been operating in the agriculture and food system space since 2010 previously mark was executive vice president at gozraj agrovet one of india's foremost diversified agri business companies He has a deep understanding of the agribusiness space in India and he's currently co-chairperson of the Confederation of Indian Industry Task Force on Agri Startups. My other guest Crispino has nearly 30 years of experience across integrated water resources management, sustainable agriculture, climate change adaptation and policy development. He co-founded four grassroots non-profits that have collectively impacted the lives of more than 2 million people across 4000 villages in India. Crispino has also been a regular participant in the pre-budget consultations on agriculture over the last 20 years. Today we're talking about what needs to change in India when it comes to agriculture, especially given the climate crisis and its impact on our food systems. Most of India's farming sector already struggles with low productivity and poor earnings, and 85% of farmers are actually smallholders. Their livelihoods are extremely vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. So when we think about agriculture, we need to think about developing climate resilience, especially among the people working across the farming value chain. And Mark and Crispino are here with me today to do just that. So Mark, I'd like to start with you. What according to you do farmers in India need most today? I think farmers in India really struggle with four primary challenges. The first is a challenge of profitability. just on a per hectare basis they don't make enough money the second is a challenge of resilience from month to month year to year there are wild wild swings in income that make their lives just frankly more difficult than they need to be more difficult than the the most stressed out startup entrepreneur right because at least they're not worried about what god's going to throw at them next in the form of you know hail or insects or some other biblical plague third they need to operate in a more sustainable ecosystem because the resources around them are basically in free fall the soil is from year to year getting worse the water tables are collapsing and finally they're facing this great challenge of climate change where you know weather has become much more erratic temperatures have risen and so when you put it all together it's a tremendous burden for farmers and unfortunately for a very long time we had this kind of legacy green revolution thinking which simply said oh well all all farmers need to do is produce more food and then they'll make more money and let's be clear that was certainly the case in 1965 when the green revolution really started in india definitely probably still the case in 1975 but 
the situation, the macro situation of India's agricultural economy has changed. The challenge that we face in India, and the problem is no one explained this to policymakers, is that we've gone from being a food deficit country to a food surplus country. We are a net exporter at this point. It took a long time to get there, and it's a remarkable achievement when you think about it, feeding 1.4 billion people and having net exports. But we now face, in many crops, a problem of plenty, not a problem of scarcity. Which means, in practice, our situation in India is more like every other agricultural economy in the world, like Europe, like the United States, like Brazil. The only difference is that we have, you know, 130 million farmers dependent on it who are almost entirely smallholders. And so at Omnivore, we think that these four pillars, the pillar of profitability, the pillar of resilience, the pillar of sustainability, and the pillar of climate action are sort of the right way to think about, in aggregate, the challenges faced by farmers and start finding some solutions. Crispino, you've been working for a very long time at the grassroots, so I want to ask you what your take is. If you asked farmers what they need most today, what would they say? More remunerative prices. That's the first thing. They have to be profitable. Number two, water is becoming a major crisis now. And, you know, particularly for... 70% of the farmers who depend on rain, this is becoming a critical constraint. And therefore, securing water, at least for protective irrigation, so that they can complete one crop cycle is very important. The next is, you know, there is a huge wastage from farm gate to the end consumer, as much as 30 to 40% of fruits and vegetables get wasted, you know. And that, of course, is factored into the end price, finally, or what the farmer is not able to get. It's important that this post-harvest technology and whole value chain, as well as the whole road from the farm gate to the consumer's plate, needs to be addressed in terms of waste reduction and efficiency enhancement. So greater returns can go back to the farmer. Fourth thing is weather variability or climate change. That is really affecting farming, creating serious losses, and also technologies of crop management. I mean, with regard to the challenge of managing crops in such a highly variable weather conditions. So the whole issue of uh, building adaptive capacities, responding to weather risks is also a major challenge facing farmers. And skill upgradation and technology adoption is another big challenge. Mostly farmers are conservative by nature and they're rather slow to adopt technologies. But without that, you would not be able to easily handle some of the challenges we have outlined. Since you mentioned the agricultural value chain, before we move to my next question, could you actually just walk us through the process briefly from production all the way to consumption? So I think I'll walk you till the farm gate, then I'll leave Mark to take you to the consumer, to the marketplace, right? Yeah, so the first thing is to decide on the type of crop you grow and when you sow it. There are many variables in this which decide whether to sow and if so, if not, the quantity and the variety of crops, because sometimes you need to take an insurance policy and diversify your crops. So that's the first thing. And then the next thing is to get good quality seeds, which is not a given. You have to really, sometimes in market, it's quite difficult to get good quality certified seeds. You need to also get the right inputs that go in, you know, in terms of the appropriate fertilizers or growth stimulators and, you know, pest and disease control inputs. All these have to be brought together with labor at the right time. So you need, there's a small window of opportunity for sowing. You know, you have to do it in a certain fixed period. 
If you miss it, then it's going to impact your productivity as well as even your decision whether to sow or not. So getting in sufficient labor and machinery or equipment or bullocks or whatever you use to be able to undertake full sowing is another challenge you have to face. Then you're also battling unexpected weather changes, you know, or weather events. And you've got to be prepared for that also. So these are some of the challenges that you're faced with when you start out itself, the farming operation. And then finally, harvest time is another big challenge. Challenge in terms of getting labor or machinery to harvest as, or equipment to harvest and to process in a way, basic processing of the production. Storage becomes an issue. And by that time, often the farmer is practically broke. I mean, his cash reserves have come down drastically and he needs to recover some of the money that he has put into the production to pay off his debts as well as to meet his own needs, including for the next season. Often, it's at this point that because of his desperation, he loses market power and often has to sell at prices that are often not remunerative or attractive. So that's to the farm gate. Over to you, Mark. Take it to the market now. Look, from the farm gate, it really depends crop by crop, right? So you first kind of have to ask, are we talking about perishable, you know, non-perishable commodities? Or are we talking about perishable horticultural crops? I mean, they're just very different value chains. The reality is that for, you know, for many farmers, they already know who they're selling to at the end of the season, because a lot of times it's the person that lent them money. And so this begins kind of, you know, value chain by value chain. This is the first point of aggregation. Once it's into the value chain, once it's into the midstream, then it gets sold trader to trader or trader to processor. So for example, let's say I'm in Madhya Pradesh and I grew soybeans. I definitely am taking that into, you know, into a market. I'm selling to a trader. That trader might then sell to another trader who sells to a processor, at which point the soybeans are turned into soybean oil, which is consumed by all of us, and soybean meal, which is either goes into the poultry value chain or gets exported. If we're talking about subsea, if we're talking about kind of fruits and, and vegetables, in many places, those have been moved out of the Mundi system. So I'm dependent on a local trader. Cotton is obviously very different. You know, sugar involves these giant mills. So it really depends on the value chain they're in. But in almost every value chain in India, there are multiple points, multiple intermediaries in between the farmer and the end consumer, almost without a doubt. And every one of those intermediaries has a cost to finance. Every one of those intermediaries takes their cut. The other thing that we have to understand is that this system also reflects policy. India, whether we want to admit it or not, has had a cheap food policy for the better part of all of the decades since independence. I want to come back to the point on policy a bit later. Now, you spoke about the terms of trade for farmers and the implications of that. As the climate crisis worsens, farmers might find themselves caught between growing what the market wants and growing what's better for the climate or what's better to grow in their region from an ecological standpoint. I don't think this is the problem. I think the reality is what the farmer grows is oftentimes a function of policy. That is certainly not always the case. You can never say, oh, someone's in poultry because of policy or someone's in silk because of policy. But if we look at a lot of crop value chains, you know, particularly around sugar 
around rice, around wheat, which to be clear are three of the, say, five largest crops in India. They are insanely influenced by policy decisions, by commodity procurement decisions. The fact that we have the kind of concentration of sugar growing that we do have in Maharashtra is a function of policy, that we allow that industry to continuously strip mine the water of the state is a function of policy. I think the reality is when farmers are making their own decisions about what to grow, when you don't have a crowding out effect, which is what effectively, this is the only thing I can compare it to, is it's a perverse set of incentives created by the public sector. Farmers mostly rationally choose things that they think that are both remunerative, that are not, you know, water guzzling monsters, and that they think, you know, work for the value chains that they would naturally operate in. Okay, so what would you change then? From a policy standpoint, when it comes to sustainable agriculture, what do you think the government needs to change? What I'm saying is that if you actually want to be serious about sustainability and you want to be serious about climate, what you need to be serious about is water. And that requires taking a look at water as you know an asset, a critical asset, an area of national security in India, you know, and then asking a simple question, where are we destroying that asset? What is the value that is being created for that asset destruction? And is it worth it? Is having a sugarcane industry, right, as large as we have, which, as I've gotten in trouble for saying, takes our most precious natural resource and converts it into obesity and diabetes, right, converts it into the problems of the Indian middle class. Is that a worthwhile trade? These are actually like real decisions that have huge implications for Indian agriculture. And I think government policy needs to reflect, needs to reflect climate. It needs to look at water as an asset that needs to be protected. Crispino, you're the expert on water. What's your view on this? Now, I agree with the policy being a very major driver of crop production in India, without doubt. Maharashtra, for instance, is a semi-arid state by and large. You see, in a dry state, we don't normally grow sugarcane there. But it started already in the 50s by virtue of a policy decision. And that's true of all the value chains, including milk production. Which doesn't mean that all policy decisions are bad. It simply means that policy does affect farm decisions in this country substantially. Indian agriculture consumes something like 82 to 84% of India's fresh water. I mean, that's huge. Huh? And when you look at the, what they call the productivity of water, that means the output per unit of water used, we are among the lowest in the world. I mean, it's abysmal. Okay, So there's huge area for improvement there, which means um, more application of technology, more application of knowledge and science. One of the things that determines prices is the balance between supply and demand. So when there's a glut, obviously the prices go down. Last year, the case of chilies, the price came down in the Kharif to two rupees a kilo. Now, the previous year, they had a great price, so all the farmers went in for that. So there was a glut, it crashed. Now, last year itself, during the last two, three months of the cropping season, they abandoned the crop in the field. Now the price is 80 rupees a kilo. So can we develop a market intelligence system wherein we, keeping many factors in mind, advise farmers what are the crops that are likely to be produced and the quantities and how it's going to possibly affect uh, the price that farmers receive. The other point is with regard to nature. I think there's a very strong case to promote techniques which are nature-friendly or what they call nature-based solutions, which is not to decry that the use of synthetic or inorganic chemicals, that's not either or. 
But there is a case and a huge envelope of opportunity. We have found, for instance, that if you take what is called integrated methods, which include both synthetic as well as organic or other nature-based inputs, you can have substantial gains in productivity and also a considerable reduction in cost of production. So organic inputs that are so essential for nature-friendly farming is needs to be addressed seriously on a war footing. It is nature, in fact, and its networks of relationships, energy exchanges and nutrient exchanges, where we as yet have still to develop the science to even understand that. So when we talk of nature-based solutions, we actually need to accept that we have a lot of science still to be uncovered and applied by way of technology or organizational inputs to make nature-friendly farming economically possible at the scale and productivity levels that we require. You're listening to On the Contrary by IDR. We'll be right back after this break. Most of us don't like to fail, and so we try and avoid it at all costs. But failure is natural, and there can be no success without it. In fact, it teaches us invaluable lessons about what not to do and how to make things right. IDR's new podcast, Failure Files, put stories of failure front and center, where you can listen to candid perspectives and lessons from social entrepreneurs working on some of the world's toughest problems. Listen and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting app. And now, back to the show. Okay, so there's a lot that we need to do, and it needs to have happened like yesterday. So is there reason to be optimistic as we look ahead at the next few decades? Yeah, I mean, look, I think there's reason to be optimistic because, you know, the reality is India, for all of its challenges, is also a nation of immense resources. We have very, very strong scientific capabilities. We have, you know, a belief in the need for food security to never go back to the ship to mouth existence that we had in the 1960s. Farmers vote and increasingly are showing that they can have political power. It's been a long time since that was the case, but I think the one very good thing that came out of what happened with the farm laws was a flexing of rural power. Even if I don't love the outcome, I love the fact that democracy worked. And so I have a lot of optimism, actually, that when push comes to shove, the government will make changes to fundamentally reform agriculture, but I believe they'll do it when they have to. Okay, like it was like, okay, I guess we have to give this up. We knew it was bad, right, for two decades before we gave it up, but we finally gave it up when there was not a penny left in the bank to continue the perpetuation of this atrocious economic system. I suppose this, uh, something similar will happen in, in ag, that eventually things will get to a crisis point, and that and, and crisis is when things suddenly change in remarkable ways in India. But there's also suddenly, when faced with a new set of facts, a willingness to change radically overnight, which I think is great. Crispino, do you agree? Yeah, I think we'll survive the crisis we have, and uh, we'll find a way out of the mess. But it will only do it when the fire is behind us. So, with regard to Going forward, I think if you want to add greater value or money in the hands of the farmers, maybe just quick three points. One is we need to reduce the wastage that goes from farm gate to the end consumer because that's 30-40% factored in already in the end price which the farmer will not get. So maybe a part of this then can accrue to them. 
The next is we need to get farmers into the value chain. You see, the real money is made from the gate onwards to the consumer. And so, and for instance, the farmers in the milk industry, which is, you know, organized with the sugar, for instance, even, and, you know, wherever you have this, they make money because the value chain has been well developed and farmers are part of that as actors, not only as beneficiaries, but as actors and decision makers, you know, in whatever level. We need to also introduce that in the other value chains in the country progressively. And one way out is a good possible sign is this establishment of farmer companies, you know, whether it is a producer company or yeah, FPOs or even cooperative, any aggregation, formal aggregation of farmers, which can change the negotiating stance or ability is a way forward, in my opinion. Slowly and progressively, they will enter the value chain and we should push them more in that direction. Okay, Not everyone will succeed, but there are some that will do it and open the pathway for the future. Third point is there is a reason why there are intermediaries and middlemen or levels. There is a reason, but there is a need to reduce those levels in order that greater that value that was embedded in those levels moves more of it to the farmer. Inevitably, there has to be policy backing. There has to be resources put in by the government. Over the long term, these things don't happen overnight. They're intergenerational often. But the government has to be backing these moves towards greater transparency, greater formalization and greater incorporation of the farm in the value chain. I think I would add one point to that, which is that I think for every crop that is being produced, we need to ask the question, why is it not being processed? Why is it not right being disintermediated, meaning sold directly from the farmer to the consumer? Or why is it not being exported? Right. And I think those three levers are the way that we need to kind of view crop by crop by crop by crop. I think water efficient exports are a tremendous need of the hour. So part of the challenge right now is, you know, for a long time, we had this very green revolution mentality of like the problem is the yield. Right. Our tomato yield is half of China's. Let's double it. Cool. You know what happens if we double the tomato yield next year? We have the streets of Maharashtra paved in tomato paste. Right. Because we actually don't have a market for 2x the tomatoes. Right. It's not like all of a sudden everyone's going to consume two times the number of tomatoes. Right. And in practice, what, what will happen is that the price will crash. And again, this is the challenge of Indian agriculture in the last 20 years is we went from a problem of scarcity to a problem of plenty, which is the same problem faced by every country, every developed agricultural country in the world. And so the question then becomes, OK, if we want to help our farmers make more money, we have to find markets for what they grow. So how do we do that? We have to add value to what they grow. We have to export what they grow. We have to disintermediate. If you can imagine, like if India was exporting, I don't know, $5 billion of mangoes a year, which, by the way, is not impossible. India could be, you know, if India had agricultural exports, horticultural exports like Latin America, Farmers would be seeing much more money coming to them for horticultural, for bananas, for mangoes, for all the stuff that we produce and don't export. It is an insanely large opportunity, but you have to build, right, A, the supply chain to do that, but you also have to be willing. And once we have that in place, then it's a great opportunity because then, by the way, let's talk about doubling the mango yield. Okay, because then we'll have a market that doesn't involve those surplus produce rotting and not actually, you know, and prices, you know, crashing as a result. I think there's a lot that can be done if we kind of think from this 
framework of can it be exported? Can it be processed, meaning it's no longer perishable, you know, and capable of being stored, you know, and can it be disintermediated value chain by value chain? Thanks, Mark. I think both of you have very clearly articulated the complexity of the task at hand when it comes to Indian agriculture. Like you've said, while there are many steps different players can take, ultimately, policy plays a big role in determining what gets cultivated, how the system is set up and who benefits, and how sustainable our food systems actually are. It seems to me that in order to work towards climate resilience, we first need to fix what's not working in the current system. And we need to do this so that there's greater transparency and formalization, and so farmers can capture more value from the agricultural supply chain. On the Contrary by IDR is produced by Rachita Vora, Smarnita Shetty, and me, Shreya Adhikari. Production by Made in India. If you like our show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts from so more people can find out about us. You can also email us on write to us at idronline.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for listening and see you next week.